0: The Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the
1: time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing truism attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine over the long term. In other words, Emotion drives short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations drive returns over time.
0: Welcome to The Weighing Machine.
1: Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think.
0: On the podcast today, it's the last episode before the election is finally behind us, at least we hope. What's our outlook for the markets in the final stretch?
1: We will also discuss the government's antitrust suit against Google and what that means for big tech plus cybersecurity, direct indexing, and hedging against inflation. That's with our guest, Chris Romano, Director of Investment Technology and Solutions at Orion Advisor Tech. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Russy Vanneman.
0: And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. October is often a volatile month, especially in an election year. And we did have an October surprise. The president contracted COVID-19. I think that was October 2nd. But the markets have been relatively stable and positive this month, so what's our takeaway for October?
1: You know, despite all the bad news and uh, bad feelings and bad sentiment and caution by investors, it's another good month so far. And uh, basically, everything is up. And what's interesting to note is smaller companies are up even more. uh, Value-based stocks are up more. International, including emerging markets, are up. Uh, Even commodities are up. It just suggests, I guess, that Uh, The markets are a little more optimistic um, moving forward.
0: All right. Well, this will be our last episode before November 3rd, when hopefully the election will be over and we will know the results. So what will we be watching for from the markets in the next few weeks?
1: Well, in the short term, I think there's a couple issues that everybody's talking about. And I think the market is pretty much... Looking past them, assuming that, you know, better days are going to be ahead. and First, all, obviously, it's a stimulus and uh, obviously uh, the timing and the details are still being sorted out, but pretty much the market is assuming that it will go through. It actually is a big deal. Uh, And if you really kind of think about a bigger picture, uh, it is about a $2 trillion package, give or take. Obviously, it depends on the details. Again, the U.S. economy, when we look at the size of the GDP, is just over $20 So this is about 10%. That's huge. And this is in uh, context that we're already near 50% fiscal spending divided by GDP this year uh, by June 30th. So these numbers are huge. And just to give it additional context, since World War II... Federal spending divided by GDP has been between 18 and 22 percent until about 2010, and it sort of ratcheted up between 20 and 25 percent. So again, 25 percent has been our high since World War II, kind of once all that federal spending sort of dissipated after the war, and now we're close to 60 percent. That's a big deal and has a lot of implications, I think, for the market moving forward. Obviously, another thing is the election, and um, it's probably one of those things that's probably closer than people think, but nonetheless, uh, the the, the Money is betting that Joe Biden's gonna win. But what's that's interesting about investors in their view on Biden, and this is also new information, is that surveys are showing that two out of three investors think the stock market will do better with Joe Biden. Again, that's kind of against conventional thinking, that is against generally what Wall Street is thinking in their estimates. Um, and it's even different from what surveys were showing what investors thought just a few months ago. That's kind of a big deal. You know, one of the things about Joe Biden is the easiest answer that people pick on as I talk about Um, what he wants to do with capital gains uh, and raise that tax rate. And it would be one of the bigger increases in U.S. history on a percentage basis. And so all else being equal, of course, that would be a negative for the stock market. The stock market has so many things going on. uh, Of course, there's multiple factors always at play. The last four times we had big increases in the cap gains tax rate, it was really a mixed bag for the stock market. In fact, in some cases, the stock market still had huge gains. So I think people are looking past that a little bit. And then, of course, COVID-19 uh, data at the national level is clearly getting worse uh, by virtually every metric. Um, Probably the only counter to it, I guess, if you want to have more of an optimistic uh, tilt to it, and I think the market is looking past this, is the fact that uh, really the, uh, the growth in the COVID cases is really happening in areas that really haven't been bad before. So it's basically here in the middle of the country. It's the Great Plains. It's the upper Midwest. Those are areas that were hit really, really hard before uh, in the U.S. aren't experiencing the same sort of numbers right now. So I think the markets are probably looking at that. Longer term, I should just say, in terms of market outlooks, and this is not uh, um, different from what we've talked about before in the podcast. I think the two biggest risks to the U.S. stock market uh, remain, first of all, valuations. Uh, In an absolute sense, the stock market for the U.S. has never been more expensive when you look at ratios such as price to sales. Or you can take another indicator and just look at the overall size of the stock market, otherwise known as the market capitalization. Again, you divide it by the size of our economy. Also, that's an all-time high, both those suggest the market is expensive. The only counter you can say to that is, well, yeah, but interest rates are really low. And that does make sense, valuations can be higher in that environment, which raises the next big risk factor. And that is interest rates, if they do rise. That is actually one asset class that is down this month. We have seen interest rates, uh, rise. The ten-year Treasury is still below one percent, but it has increased. And there are reasons why interest rates could rise. Um, obviously, there are some some inflationary pressures starting to perk up. I think there's intuitively it makes sense inflation would pick up, and we are seeing in some data uh, the dollar is getting weaker. And so all those are sort of interrelated anyway. So those are some risk factors. And really the conclusion is, again, the same conclusion we always talk about, just diversify portfolios. uh, Diversify um, not only by sectors and by style, but also by region and also by investment strategies. That was a much longer answer than you were looking for, (laughs) Bobby. But
0: full of helpful information, so that's all
1: right. We hope so. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So there was also big news in the tech sector this week. Uh, The New York Times called it the government's most significant challenge to a tech company's market power in a generation. Of course, I'm talking about the antitrust suit filed against Google. Could this have an impact on Google and the broader tech sector's dominance in the market?
1: Probably, but it's not a slam dunk, yes. Um, Again, first of all, this is the biggest antitrust um, uh, suit in a generation. Uh, Basically, uh, uh, the case is saying that Google is is a it's displaying monopoly powers obviously it's got 80 to 90 percent of the market share in search basically they can do that because google is really the default preset in a lot of different areas such as like apple um and so that could be a catalyst for a change in relative uh, performance and and again i think it makes it you can pretty much expect it because not only is the case in us uh, there's also antitrust against some of the big tech firms including google from europe um, also, it has bipartisan support in many cases, and so you think it, it's, it is going to happen, um, and quite frankly, it may be having an impact in the market. Again, in terms of relative performance, even though growth in tech and these names are, are clearly outperforming for the year, they have been underperforming now for – um, over three months uh, versus uh, the more cyclical, smaller uh, domestic company. The only thing that's really, really interesting about all this is that as we're recording, uh, when these this news came out on Google, their stock has really basically just gone up. So, you know, it's just fascinating, really.
0: Well, let's bring in our guest. Uh, Chris Romano is Director of Investment Technology and Solutions at Orion Advisor Tech. Chris, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks. It's good to be here.
1: Well, Chris, you are a cybersecurity expert. You're talking about it all the time. We we actually have a morning call at Orion. Uh, really, all the in, investment related people come together, and we get a one of the things we do is we call it one cool thing. So everybody gets to mention just one thing, either personally and professionally, um, and it's been really useful in this era of Zoom and remote. And Chris often brings up cybersecurity factoids and facts. Um, and he has a very interesting position here at Orion Advisor Technology, um, which isn't necessarily cybersecurity because he's doing so much stuff. Chris, tell us more about what you do here at Orion Advisor Technology.
2: Yeah, thanks, Rusty. So first, I would say that um, while I have a background in it, uh, I'm definitely not an expert in cybersecurity. Uh, I don't want to minimize the, the real experts out there. Um and I can talk about the, my background in a minute, but since you asked, um, you know, what do I do here at Orion? That, that's a good question. You know, the, the primary thing that I do here at Orion is I run from a, from a product side, our investment technology suite. So that includes um, our portfolio optimization platform that our clients use for direct indexing, our investment trading applications, model marketplace. So I'm working with our developers, our stakeholders, our clients, um, and really kind of building out those products. Um, But I also have the benefit of being also on the OPS Investment Committee, where uh, I work with uh, a team there on the beta side and designing and developing um beta type strategies like the cyber security strategy that we're going to be talking about
1: and as we kind of teased out so far of course ryan is introducing a cyber security investment strategy and i'm probably going to steal a little bit of your thunder here um but it obviously makes a lot of sense in this environment as we all know um, I seeing in the headlines cyber warfare and cyber crime are clearly on the rise I think I read where over 80% of companies have been hacked this year. There's uh, just been an exponential increase of attacks uh, by supercomputers with 45% of, of Americans now working from home. It's really no surprise the FBI has reported a, a, a 400% increase in uh, cyber attack complaints. I mean, there's all these different facts that go on and on and on. Can you tell us a little bit about the story behind the cybersecurity investment strategy and the investment thesis behind it?
2: Yeah, definitely. So on on the strategy itself, it's it's a pretty straightforward strategy. So we're going to target uh, roughly about 30 securities uh, from companies that are active in the cybersecurity marketplace. Um, and similar to our other kind of thematic and targeted strategies that we have here uh, within Orion, it's going to be equally weighted. And that that's important because and there's not a lot of I would say kind of pure plays in cybersecurity. There's uh, a lot of firms that do cybersecurity along with other um, services. So if you were to kind of cap weight it, you would have significant concentration in a few names just because of their large market cap. So we want to try to make sure that we have kind of more of a pure uh, exposure uh, to the cybersecurity sector within the, uh, within the portfolio. And that gets rebalanced every, every quarter. But, you know, you, you asked a good question. You did mention a, a lot of great statistics and information. I mean, cybersecurity, the internet, it's it's all around us today, right? It's, it's not going to take long um, for people to kind of realize that, right? We know within our phones, we have access to everything. We can start our cars. We can watch our houses while we're gone. We can check in on anything. I just saw a commercial where... Um, they're advertising you can start your oven while you're at the grocery store, all from an app within your phone. And Rusty, as you mentioned, everyone's working from home. So it's a huge uh, kind of attack vector for hackers to try to get into, you know, your network, your company's network. People are VPN in to their company's network. And really what they're trying to do is steal data um, or, you know, the big thing that we see in, you um, a lot of places now is the ransomware where they'll encrypt your files and you have to pay kind of a ransom to get your files back. And so it's it's really all over the place. And that's just, you know, just growth, growth exponentially now with people working from home.
1: Yeah. I just had one quick thing, just also from an investment standpoint. I did run some numbers myself looking at cybersecurity stocks. I mean, as for all the reasons you mentioned, it, I mean, the story is pretty easy to grasp. Um, maybe not some of the technology behind it, but the, but the story is easy to grasp by investors. Um, but and also probably investors are pretty attracted to some of the the returns that those individual stocks have had this year. But what I think is really interesting is that those stocks, when you just look at them, they're extremely volatile on a standalone basis. I mean, kind of on average, they're twice as volatile as the stock market is. And obviously there's going to be winners and losers. so having a basket of a bunch of those names such as this strategy makes sense. But the other thing that makes which is really interesting about cybersecurity stocks is that they don't exactly move in the same rhythm as the overall stock market. And of course, we look at fancy statistical measures like correlation. and I've noticed over the three, five and 10 year time frames the correlation of cybersecurity stocks relative to the US market is about 0.4. I mean, that's, that is, I mean, it's still positive, but it's, it has much stronger diversification benefits than a lot of other things that people are using for diversifiers. So anyway, it makes a lot of sense from an investment standpoint too.
2: Yeah, that, that's, that's a great point. And, you know, a lot of the cybersecurity, you're going to see that they're a lot more news driven and that kind of helps with that kind of um, dispersion in the names in those, in that portfolio. So you're going to get a lot of of volatility whenever there's a big hack that comes out, whether it was Twitter or I just noticed the other day, um, I wanna say like two days ago, Vicky's barbecue that's based out of Texas had something like 3 million um, credit cards stolen from their corporate network. So when you see these attacks get publicized, you're gonna get a lot of volatility, a lot of positive returns as investors start, you know, putting money to work in those names. So that's really what's providing a lot of that diversification. And that's, I think that's kind of common through a lot of these kind of thematic portfolios where you're looking for kind of two things. One, uh, a longer term investment trend. And we've kind of talked about that a little bit with the data breaches and everyone working from home. It's just, it's an area where companies are gonna have to continue to invest money and grow. So you're just gonna see those names grow bigger within the marketplace. Um, But also, you know, try to move a little differently than the market, not purely beta um, exposed. And so they're driven by something else. So, um, you know, whether it's biotech that's being driven by vaccines or metals and miners that, you know, can be driven by uh, fiscal stimulus, the cybersecurity is going to be driven by, you know, a lot of the news flows that's happening out there today.
1: Yeah. I just had a, another question and a point. From an investment standpoint, one other thing that's related to everything we just mentioned that makes a lot of sense is because the stocks are volatile and you have a basket of them and they're not perfectly correlated to each other. And by the way, that's a great point about news flow. But because of all these factors, it lends itself also to tax management. And I'm sure that you could get pretty interesting tax alpha out of it. So I have one question also about cybercrime and stuff. I have actually been donating money on a monthly basis to an over some overseas royalty. Is that related <laughs> to cyber stuff at all?
2: No, not at all. Um, and I will I'll send you another charity that you're more than welcome to donate to. And I swear I'm not affiliated
1: with it at all. <laughs> okay, Robin, I'll give you back the ball. Sorry about okay. that. <laughs>
0: no problem. Uh, Chris, you're also um, you're also involved with Orion's direct indexing effort. So we've talked about direct indexing on the show a few times, but it's still a pretty new idea. So how would you describe the process of direct indexing for our listeners?
2: Yeah, and you know, there's really no, I would say, standard definition of what direct indexing is. You can get a couple of different answers based on who you speak with. But the way we kind of think about it and the way our clients are using it and the way we use it internally is, you know, if I just take kind of a a general stance is if I want to direct index the S&P 500, I'm going to take the S&P 500, try to replicate it with a subset of securities. So maybe 150 names and then really target uh, a tracking error, maybe around one and a half percent. And the value there is to really provide that, that tax alpha. How can I take you know, uh, strategy or an index that has a large number of securities, you subset, get a very similar risk return profile, but be able to actively tax loss harvest. Um, and that's really the basis of direct indexing.
1: I think just let's delve a little bit deeper into that. So, direct indexing has been touted as like the next big thing and it's going to destroy uh, the ETF industry and a lot of really big stuff. I think. I guess in your own words, what do you think are some of the biggest advantages and disadvantages of direct indexing?
2: Yeah, I don't think at this point the ETF industry has anything to worry about. You know, maybe maybe a little bit, but you know, there's a, you know, it's I'm a little biased. I like direct indexing a lot. Um, one of the the big advantages is that that tax management, right, for taxable accounts. Actively tax loss harvest, all while kind of maintaining a relatively static or standard risk-return profile relative to an to an index or a strategy or something like that. But to really be able to manage uh, an account for a specific client's specific client's um, tax needs, to me that's a huge benefit to be able to provide that tax alpha, and then. One of the other big advantages is is the ability to kind of customize it. If I worked in the um, energy industry, I may say I want to replicate the S&P 500, but I don't want any exposure to the energy sector because my income, my 401k is heavily tied to the energy um, sector. So I don't want to overweight that, but I still want to track the S&P as close as possible. Or maybe... Um, What you hear more and more about today is ESG or values-based. Maybe I don't want to invest in alcohol companies or tobacco companies, or I want to invest in companies that promote diversity. Instead of buying a prepackaged product where you don't have that flexibility, you can now uh, overlay that custom requirement of those values on an individual client basis. And still maintain a relatively standard kind of tracking error or return profile. So those are really the, the benefits. The big um, disadvantage, if you will, um, is you know you you are going to hold more names, and you are going to generally be trading that a little bit more often, right? To to get that tax alpha, you do have to realize those losses trade into something um, different. So. There is a disadvantage uh, today in, you know, if, if you're owning 150 names, you know, 200 names, you can't do that with a $50,000 account. Um, that will be solved in the near future as the custodians uh, start implementing fractional shares at the RAA level. They do it on the retail level, but they don't offer it really on the RAA level today. And then again, the, the number of, uh, of positions where you know, it, it you will get a lot of statements, you'll get a lot of trade confirmations, your tax attorney or CPA or whoever's doing your taxes may not be ha- happy to go through hundreds of trades uh, to reconcile that. Um, those are really kind of your your bigger disadvantages uh, at this point.
1: So kind of just riffing on that concept again about the advantages and disadvantages, but talking about like case studies. So like what are some examples? who would benefit the most from using direct indexing and how about a case study of somebody who wouldn't be a great fit for direct indexing?
2: Yeah. I mean there, you know, for direct indexing specifically, you know, it's, it's going to benefit those that have most of their assets in taxable accounts. So they can really benefit from that tax alpha. If you kind of look historically, it's, it's, and it's going to depend on the index, but the long-term average that the industry has kind of seen is being able to provide a tax alpha between, you know, one and 2% a year. And that's, that's significant. Um, you know, so those that can really benefit from that tax um, alpha, if you will. So if they have, you know, capital gains coming in from a business they own or from transitioning um, other parts of their accounts to a different strategy, uh, any taxable client is going to be a, a good potential um client uh, for direct indexing. Those with most of their assets in, um, in qualified or those are just starting to gather wealth so they're kind of more early in, in their years that have the small you know, have smaller accounts um, they're going to be less affected or benefit less from direct indexing unless there's a kind of significant value overlay where they don't want to own specific names you know there's there's a lot of great packaged products that can implement you know, kind of ESG and value based views but you know for those that are most of their assets in qualified accounts won't have as much benefit as those with taxable assets
1: yeah makes sense i got one more question here so you uh, one of the terms you just mentioned is tax alpha and You know, one thing about direct indexing, it is—it's basically solving a math problem. There are certain numbers that you're trying to balance behind the scenes. I guess there is some judgment deciding, kind of on the continuum, how much emphasis to put on each other, but two terms. One you just mentioned, if you could just sort of define them and why they're important is first tax alpha, just a little more detail on that. And then kind of the other big number, which is always associated with index strategies, and that is the super exciting term tracking error, or some people like to call it tracking difference.
2: Tax alpha is really the easiest way to think about it is the difference in returns between your pre-tax returns and your after-tax returns. So how much was I able to see in terms of capital gains is really what you want to think about when you think about tax alpha. So if I'm able to realize 2% losses in the account, so 2% relative to my account value, then you're really driving 2% of additional benefit to the client. Um, And that's that's really kind of tax alpha. Tracking error, on the other hand, is... um, more of a of a difference expectation. So a tracking error, a, a number that um, a lot of people use within direct indexing for tracking error targets is one and a half percent. We can simplify it by saying one percent in bio. One percent tracking error. All we're saying is over the next one year, if the index is up ten percent, I expect my client to be plus or minus one percent. So between nine and eleven percent. So it can be plus 1% on the benefit or it can be you know, minus 1%, but I'm going to stay within that, that range. So tracking year is kind of that, that range where you expect it to be relative to your benchmark.
0: Let's, let's switch gears here. You also have experience in the mining and energy markets. Um, you spent several years trading commodity linked equities, as I understand, and drawing on that experience, you created a new metals and mining strategy at Orion that can be used as a hedge against inflation. Um, can you tell us more
2: about it? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, similar to the cybersecurity strategy, the metals and mining is a concentrated portfolio again, um, 30 names. It is equally weighted. It does have a kind of low ball tilt. It's definitely not low ball, but um, it does have a, a little bit of a low ball, low ball tilt in terms of the weight because of. The, again, just like cybersecurity, the increased volatility within names, most of your miners are on the smaller cap side. So we wanted to put a little bit of a, a low ball tilt there. And that is updated again on a quarterly basis. Um, you'll see that theme play out over our similar type of strategies. But metals and mining is, is very unique in the sense that you know these these securities are mining primarily for gold. That's kind of the focus of the strategy is, is gold and silver, but mostly the gold miners. And there's a lot of unique um, attributes to the gold miners. And one is that you know, their primary source of goods, right? their revenue is the price of gold, um, which can fluctuate hugely based on uh, a number of different factors. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, it can be because of fiscal stimulus. As the government prints more money, people are looking for gold as a hedge against inflation. Uh, It can also be driven by the Indian wedding cycle. In the Indian market, they're the largest buyers of jewelry um, for weddings. And and there's a, uh, a cycle there which drives price movement within gold. But one of the things when you're mining gold is you can't really increase or decrease your supply very quickly. So those are long-term capital extensive projects that once you start opening up a mine, you're not going to shut it down. You can't just open up a new mine as prices increase. So supply is, is pretty static so that you won't get a lot of change in supply relative to the price of gold. So as the price of gold goes up, you're going to have limited supply, which really helps uh, profit margins for these companies. So it, it creates a, a large opportunity for for these companies as they're generally highly leveraged.
0: Well, hey, thanks, Chris. It's been great to have you on the show today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That's going to do it for this week. Rusty, final words?
1: Well, first of all, thanks to Chris. I mean, he knows so much about so many things and it also should be noted, I think he's our third repeat guest on The Weighing Machine so far. And again, because... He, he knows so much about so many different areas. As for that, of course, uh, thank you, everybody, for your time, as always, and stay balanced and stay the course. All right.
0: We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine, and thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com.